As you might suspect, I'm talking a little bit about family today. And so I come from a particular family. And in my family, I, uh, I am the son of Mike and Sherry. So Mike and Sherry, whoops, we'll go back one more. So well, I'll get there eventually. <laughs> so there we go. So I belong to the Vanderpool family. And that's made up of Mike and Sherry, myself, and my brother. So Mike and Sherry got married. My dad's no longer with us. My mom is. She dropped off some coffee for me this week. Thanks, Mom. And their marriage union produced two kids. I'm the older of two of us. I'm the country mouse. I live in Kentucky. My brother is the city mouse. He lives in Las Vegas, Nevada. <gasps> Big city. Okay. We fought like nobody's business as kids. I'm ashamed to say it, but I was not the best big brother, so we would torment each other all the time, rile each other up, poke each other, prod each other, trying to get the other person mad. And when we were growing up, I was bigger, faster, stronger because I was older. Today, today, my brother has arms the size of tree trunks. He could take me down in under three seconds if he wanted to, okay? Oh, how the tables have turned. And so in my family of origin, my mom's parents have a unique story. So my mom's mother married and divorced six different times. I know. So some of you that are like, well, I'm only on my third marriage. See, you're doing better. You're doing better than my grandmother, okay? And so she came from a bunch of Italian Catholics and they drank a lot, they swore a lot, they, they went through this, I love you, hate you. So the, the way that their family dynamic worked is you were either in good graces or you were out of good graces. And if you were out of good graces, you could not visit home, you couldn't go back home, you couldn't talk to people. So my mom would have these two year periods where her mother never called and then out of the blue, ah, oh, I love you, come visit me, right? And so love you, hate you, that's kind of how that worked. Um, Grandpa Steve, whom I only saw a few times growing up uh, because of what he experienced in World War II, he was a functional alcoholic. So I, I have these memories of going to visit Grandpa Steve and he would say to an, uh, his one son, boy, bring me a beer. But Grandpa Steve had a magic window in the back of his station wagon that I thought was really cool, okay? So that was my mom's side. On my dad's side, my, my dad's mother, Viola, her parents were uh, uh, Methodist pastors. And, and church folk, and she came from a long line of going to church, be the church, that kind of stuff. And she married this man from Kentucky, Samuel Maxwell. And part of their marriage dynamic was she had arthritis and she couldn't do a lot of things physically. And Grandpa Vanderpool would just make decisions and not even tell her. So I remember, I've told you this story before, it was uh, they went to church, they came home from church, and my grandfather told my grandmother, I'm going into town for a few hours, I'll be back later. And three hours later, he calls her on the phone and he says, well, you want to come see the new house? How does that strike you, ladies? <laughs> right? So my family has all kinds of cool things that are in it. And it's got issues in it. And you know what? Your family of origin has all kinds of cool things in it and has also got some issues in it. That's the way it is with family. Now, as I've said before at Generations Community Church, church is one of the big metaphors used in scripture 
uh, family is one of the big metaphors in Scripture used for church. So one of the biggest metaphors used in Scripture to describe the church is this metaphor of family. Now, in a family, you're irreplaceable. There's only one you, right? (laughs) There's only one you. When they made you, they broke the mold, literally, okay? There's only one you. That means you're irreplaceable. So the way it's supposed to work in family, supposed to, is that you're a member of the family and you're loved and valued because you're a member of the family, not because of what you do, not because of what you earn, not because of what you produce. Now, I know there are some dysfunctional families out there, and we can talk about that another day, but in a family, you're irreplaceable, okay? It's why Paul says what he says in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, he says this, Ephesians chapter two nineteen. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. That means that Generations Community Church is a family, okay? And so I want to name something for our family. Our family over the last two to three years has experienced a lot of loss, haven't we? Because we were so excited. We had been portable and portable, and we had set up and tear down, set up and tear down, set up and tear down. And we finally came around to getting our first apartment, so to speak. We rented... We rented this space on the south end of Nicholasville next to what you all call the ghetto Kroger, okay? In a shrewd move, okay? And so we were so excited. We were going to get to use this space, and we really got settled in at Christmas, and then what happened? COVID. And everything shut down. And because we have so many immunocompromised people in our congregation, we were among the most shut down of churches for the longest time. And so... We lost worship services together. We lost our groups, like Bible study groups and things that would meet. We lost our teams. We lost uh, all kinds of things, Uh, our events, our celebrations. And in the midst of that, we lost several marriages. A number of you have lost your biological parents in the last two to three years. And then... We've lost health and money. So we've experienced some loss. Now, one of the things that happens in the face of loss is that you'll often say to yourself, man, I wish I could go back. I wish I could go back to the way things were when mom and dad were together. I wish I could go back to the way things were back in 2019. I wish I could go back to the way things were back in 1984. There was no internet and Ronald Reagan was in office, right? And and all that other stuff that people say because they think it was better. And they look back with this lens of nostalgia. But here's the deal. You can't go home again. You can't go home again. I'm going to tell you that I have this temptation too. I grew up in Hartford City, Indiana in the 1970s. And in the late summer, early fall, when we have a crisp morning with no humidity, I think to myself, I want to go back to Hartford City, Indiana. The problem is the auto industry collapsed, farming collapsed. Anybody who could get out of town left town. (laughs) The Hartford City that I know and love in my head and my heart is gone. I can't go back. There are people that say they want to take America back. And sometimes when they talk about that and they use that language, they're thinking about the 1950s when 
you know, there was a mom and a dad and, and only the dad worked and the mom stayed at home and there were the Boy Scouts and all the other stuff that kind of made community life maybe a little bit easier, more homogenous. Of course, there's some Americans because of the color of their skin or whatnot that would say, hey, the 1950s weren't so great for us, so I'm not so keen to go back, <laughs> right? But we have this thing where we think we can go back, but we have, the, uh, we have the Eisenhower interstate system. You can still get on I-75 or I-64, bless your heart, if you want to. But Eisenhower's gone, and the 1950s are gone. In fact, it's even worse than that. The America that started America, colonial America, with George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and the big ponytails and the Quakers and the Congregationalists and the drunk Anglicans. Let me tell you, Anglicans, those Anglicans drunk like fish. They never went to church and they were reprobate, but man, they were part of colonial America. The deists, that world of the 1700s is gone. We can't go back. I run into pastors and church planners who will say this, Max, I just want to go back to the church of the first century. And I always smile. And I think to myself, you can't do that. You want to know why? You can't go back to the first century. <laughs> Thank goodness the Roman Empire is gone. <laughs> the world of the first century with its polytheism and an entire society, four out of 10 people were slaves. I mean, it was not cool. That world is gone. The world in which Paul wrote these many letters and the world in which the church was birthed, okay? So even though you can't go back home again, I wanna ask you to do something different. I wanna ask you to go forward. And so today, would you be willing to go forward with me? Would you be willing to go forward with your church family Generations Community Church. And I think a big way for us to go forward is to really reclaim this metaphor of family. And so to do that, I want to be in the book of Romans today, Romans chapter 8, uh, verses, I think, 12 through 16, 12 through 17. So Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 17. I'm going to read this, and then I want to kind of explain it. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you'll die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you'll live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you've not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you've received God's Spirit when He adopted you as His own children. Now, now we call Him Abba. Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we're his children, we're his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we're to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. So in this passage are echoes of the wilderness, okay? In this passage are echoes of the wilderness experience of the Israelites, as they were going out of Egypt and wandering in the desert, God gave them a pillar of fire and smoke to lead them. God gave the church his spirit to lead us. Uh, in the wilderness, the Israelites were tempted to go back to Egypt, to go back to the life that they had that was stable and they knew how it worked. They had embodied an embodied lifestyle of slavery. 
It's what they knew. It's what was in their bodies and in their minds and in their hearts. And it's easy to go back to what you know, even though it may not be best for you. And likewise, we in the church, we're tempted to go back to our habituated patterns and embodied sinful patterns that we have in our lives, okay? And Paul is saying, no, no, don't do that. Stick with it. Keep walking. Keep walking in the Spirit. And he says something profound in this passage, and that's in the second part of it here. He says, we have been adopted. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children, okay? So I want to unpack this a little bit. You can see it in the different phrases. His own children, Abba, Father, God's children, his children, adopted, all right? God has placed you into his family. One of the beautiful truths of the gospel is that in Jesus, we're placed into God's family. Yes, God saved you and me from sin and death, but God also adopted us into his family. Now, before you were saved, before you said yes to Jesus, there was holy God and unholy you. Remember that? Holy God and unholy you. You were alienated, separated, estranged. God was holy. You were fallen and broken. Okay? But then in Jesus Christ, you got adopted. It's why John says what he says in the beginning of his gospel. He puts it this way. He says, he came into the world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Now, I need to talk about something that goes around in our culture for a moment because of what the Bible is telling us here. On the one hand, we can say we're all God's children because everybody is made in God's image and everybody has inerrant worth and dignity and value because they're a human being. No matter how many extra chromosomes they have, they're made in God's image and they're valuable as such. And in that sense, we're all God's children. But in the scriptures, in both the Old and New Testament, the scripture writers speaking for God uh, make a distinction and they say, in fact, God's children are actually a group of people. So there's two groups of people in life, children of light, children of darkness, children of the father, children of wrath. Um, Jesus uh, draws this out in his teachings at the end of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. Jesus says there are sheep and goats, okay? And so when God redeems people, he brings them into his family. So in the Bible, when you see the phrase children of God, I want you to understand that it has this redemptive quality to it. God has redeemed these people and adopted them into his family. And so from God's perspective, yes, he loves everyone. And Jesus died for everyone. I don't believe in limited atonement, <laughs> okay? But God's children are those he has redeemed and adopted into his family. In as the Bible uses that phrase, okay? We see it especially in Jesus when he's talking to a group of people in John chapter 8. So in John chapter 8, uh, Jesus has this interchange with 
some of the members of the God Squad. And they say to Jesus, our father is Abraham. No, Jesus replied, for if you were really the children of Abraham, you'd follow his example. Instead, you're trying to kill me because I told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham never did such a thing. No, you're imitating your real father. They replied, we aren't illegitimate children. God himself is our true father. And look at what Jesus says to them. If God were your father, you'd love me because I've come to you from God. I'm not here on my own. God sent me. Why can't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't even hear me. For you are children of your father, the devil. And you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning and he's always hated the truth because there's no truth in him. And Jesus go on, goes on to say, I don't lie. I only speak what I say because I've heard it from my father. So, so there's this distinction made in scripture. And I wanted to draw that out for you. We're adopted into God's family when we say yes, when we respond to the gospel and we're made new, we're born again, we're saved. These are all metaphors the Bible uses to talk about that transformation. And Paul in the book of Romans, in the section that we've been in, says that we're adopted. So I wanna kind of give you the cultural background of this so you understand this a little bit better. In Jewish communities, there was no understanding or concept of adoption. So in Jewish culture and in Jewish communities, if a woman was widowed, if a child was orphaned, you went out to brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, grandparents, members of the extended family, fourth cousins, clan members, tribe members, you kept going further out in the family tree until you could find somebody that would bring them in, somebody that would redeem, marry the woman, etc. And if you didn't find anybody, they were truly orphaned or widowed. And then the community had to care for them. But they had no concept of adoption. It was the Romans who had this concept of adoption. And the way it worked is it was something that the upper classes of Roman society did. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about how many kids died in the ancient world and really the world until about 100 years ago. So if you had eight children born to you, four of them would live to become adults. If you had four children born to you, two of them would live to become adults. It was a brutal world. And so among the senatorial class of Romans, you could get to your later years and your surviving children are two or three daughters and you have no male heir. What's a Roman senator to do? So they come up with this concept of adoption. And the way it worked is as a Roman senator, you would pick an adult man. So if I were the senator, I would go, Derek, you seem like a stout young man. I'm going to make you a Vanderpool. You're going to be a Maximus Minimus Vanderpoolus. <laughs> you will become my adopted son. And when that happened and when I adopted you into my family, it meant that you had the same standing as Jill and Maddie and any other daughters that I had, right? You were equal. You weren't lower or less than. You were equal. Now, the other thing that made adoption different in the Roman circles is the, way, is the way that it was permanent. So once I would adopt Derek into my family, I couldn't change my mind, I couldn't go back, it was permanent. The way Roman families worked back then was a lot like the way my 
Italian Catholic side of the family worked <laughs> growing up as a kid. So as a Roman uh, head of a family, if you didn't like what one of your kids was doing, you could disavow them and kick them out of the family. You could just get rid of anybody you didn't want or didn't like for any reason. But an adopted son couldn't do anything about that. That was permanent. That was enduring. And so it had this category uh, that th it had this category of being wanted, uh, being loved, being special, being chosen, right? And again, the upper classes practiced this. By the way, Julius Caesar did this. Many of the Caesars did this. Julius Caesar adopted a young man named Octavian. Octavian later inherited literally the Roman Empire and became Caesar Augustus, the guy we read about in Luke's gospel who conducted the census of the entire Roman world, right? So some of you are probably going, Max, this is so messed up. And I would say, yes, Roman society was really messed up. American society is really messed up. Basically, society in general is really messed up, okay? Um, but Paul is wanting to say something to us in this passage of Romans. And one of the things that Paul is wanting to say is, you are chosen by God. You are placed into God's family and adopted. You're wanted. You're loved. This position that you now have in God's family is permanent. God's not going to change his mind or boot you out. Okay? That's God's stance for you. And for the Gentile Greco-Roman Christians that he was writing to in this letter, another thing that he's saying is, you know the Jewish Christians, how they like to kind of say to you, we're better because we're the original part of God's family. You know, you're the latecomers. Paul is saying, no, no, it's equal. They don't have a leg up on you. God loves all of his sons and daughters equally, and one's not better than the other. Okay, so Paul is saying a number of important things by using this metaphor of adoption. I want to draw out four things uh, from this, and then I want to talk about our church in particular. First of all, we belong to God. We're not spiritual orphans trying to make our way in this world all by ourselves. Boo! We belong to God. And we don't need to run away from God when we mess up, when we fall back into sin patterns, when we have tragedy hit our lives, because God isn't disappointed with us, and God isn't going to kick us out of his family. Secondly, we belong to one another. If you'll remember at the beginning of this passage, Romans chapter 8, verse 12, Paul says, dear brothers and sisters, we belong to each other. We belong to each other. The good news about this is that in God's family, you're not an only child. <laughs> the good news and the bad news <laughs> is that you are not the only child. God's got a big family. And it's not just here. It's all over the city. It's all over the world. It's all nations and ethnicities, all different kinds of tongues and all different kinds of ways of worshiping him. Number three, we belong in the church. Now, the Greek word for church means assembly, but it's really the, assemble, uh, the assembly of God's family. It's really what's happening. And then we belong in God's family. Remember from the video, God promised Abraham that he was going to make a family for himself? You're here because God is fulfilling that promise that he made to Abraham thousands of years ago, okay? 
So let me ask a couple of questions. Uh, the first question is simply this. What comes to mind when you think of church, when you think of family? What comes to mind for you? There's a word that I used four different times in those four statements, belong. Here's what I would say. In the past, in America, a lot of people believed first and then belonged. The way I think it's going to happen for us moving forward is that people are going to belong and then believe. That's how it's going to happen. They're going to belong to this church family as they work out their stuff and they figure out that God is a loving father and that they can give their heart and life to him. And that's how it's going to play out. They're going to belong before they believe. Some of you are here for that very reason. Okay? So let me take this home and make this practical, and then I want to talk about our church family. In light of the fact that we're adopted into God's family, it means we need to spend time together. Imagine a dad who says he loves his kids more than anything, but he's never home, right? Never goes to any of their games, never acknowledges any of their birthdays. Or a daughter who says, I love my mom so much, she lives in Toledo, I never call her. <laughs> right, okay? So we've got to spend time together. In Acts chapter 2, it talks about the fact that the early church was in temple and constantly meeting in each other's homes. Um, here's what this means for those of you that are introverts. When there's things going on in church life, there's this part of you that's like, I totally need to stay home. This is going to draw energy from me, and I need to take care of me. And I want to say to you, yes, you do need to take care of you, but you can't shortchange the spending time together. It's absolutely critical, absolutely critical. Secondly, share stories. When you heard about how your mom and dad met and they told the story of how they met and fell in love and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff, that was a formative story for you. And in our church family, the formative stories are how each of us found our way back to God or God found us, God redeemed us, God did this or that in our lives. And these are short stories that we should be sharing one another. And not just those stories, but our testimony, the good things and the bad. Um, three, serve one another. Imagine a home where nobody took out the trash or nobody did the dishes. Some of you are like, that is my home, and I yell at them all the time. <laughs> okay? Well, it's not a place, right? So... This means making a meal for someone from time to time, mowing their lawn, watching their kids. And I would say to you that spending time together naturally flows out into serving one another. I have found that Americans have a harder time serving a stranger than they do somebody they know. They'll do something for somebody they know, but one of the distinctives of Christians moving forward is doing it for strangers that we don't know so well, right? And then lastly, share hurts and struggles. Uh, we should be appropriately vulnerable about our suffering, about our sin struggles. Life isn't always easy, good, or fair. And all of us have family issues. Remember the tr family tree at the beginning? And stuff that we're struggling with. Some of these things should not be secrets, not in a church family. Okay? So those are some ways to take it home. So I want to talk about our congregation for a minute, if I can. Over the next 10 years, so it's 20 what, 2022? So between now and 2032, I believe a few things. One is this thing I just articulated. I believe people are going to belong before they believe. That's going to happen, and we're going to see that happen in our midst. The other thing I want to encourage us is to continue to resist political polarization. 
America's doing this thing where they're like, I'm with Team Blue. I'm with Team Red. And they do the whole thing. You stink. No, you stink more. No, if we were in control, it would be utopia. No, if we were in control, it would be utopia. And back and forth they go. Okay? You may have lots of affinities with stuff in Team Blue or Team Red. That's okay. But here, we're with Team Jesus. And Team Jesus takes precedence over Team Blue and Team Red. And so I want to encourage you to continue to resist political polarization. Our identity primarily is what has been given us by being adopted into God's family. We are now adopted sons and daughters. We belong to God. We belong because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Okay? And that's our primary identity. Uh, number two, I think that moving forward, we're going to have to embrace both digital and physical spaces. And I'm going to make a confession. As I'm getting more advanced middle age, I'm becoming more and more of a Luddite. More and more of someone who's like, technology's just awful. It's corrupted everything. I wish we could go back to 1980. Yeah, VCR that, okay? And I recognize that in me. But here's what I've learned. I think Americans, and, and we've discovered this in our own church family, Zoom church was awkward, but there are some things in some contexts where the ability to hop on and gather in that way rather than physically leave your home work, right? So how do we embrace both digital and physical spaces? And what does that look like, right? So I confess that my tendency is going to be want to just focus only or exclusively on physical spaces. But I would say no, both are going to be necessary over the next decade. Number three, cultivating embodied habitus. We're going to be spending a lot of time over the next many years fig, uh, figuring out what that looks like for us. But the earliest Christians were known by their habitus. So what is a habitus? A habitus is a way of living. It's the way you live life. So from, say, 80, 90 AD, when the Apostle John is still around, all the way to 250 AD, this is what the Romans said about the Christians. Oh, look how they love. Look how they love. They didn't say, look what they believe. Look how they worship. Look at their cool songs. Look at how awesomely loyal they are to Caesar. It was none of those kind of things. It was look how they love. It was how their care and love for one another and then the most marginalized people in their communities. And that's what people noticed about the earliest Christians, okay? So there's an embodied way of living that that we need to recover. The way a lot of Protestant pastors will talk about it is they'll say the crisis of the church today is a crisis of discipleship. And what they're talking about when they say that are these ways of living that remind people and reek of Jesus. And then lastly, love each other well. Um, there's a dynamic in America today where you have even religious people saying the right things, but, what, but they're, they're saying the right thing, but they're shouting and they're saying it like they're really angry and full of hate. And then everybody's else like, man, quit hating, <laughs> like, okay? So it matters not only to say the right thing, but to say it in the right way. I've learned this the hard way in husband training. I can say the right thing, but if I say it the wrong way, it doesn't matter, <laughs> okay? It's got to, the tone and love and whatnot have to match the words, okay? 
So loving each other well. Why is all of this important? I believe that one of the biggest things that America is facing right now is more and more orphans. Our world, our society is filled of people who are orphaned. They're orphaned by their family of origin because they didn't go to college. Mom and dad wanted them to go to college. And why didn't they amount to anything? Blah, 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 blah. Or they, they've, uh, mom and dad got divorced or whatever it is, right? And they've got issues. And so they feel orphaned by their family of origin. And then there's people who are church orphans. They were in a church. They did church for a long time. And then there was an abusive, powerful pastor who did things that were bad. And they were like, no, no. And they walked away. And then we've got people who've been orphaned by school and tribes, right? They went through public school and they didn't fit in with the jocks. They didn't fit in with the theater people. And they didn't find their particular tribe in the school system, right? And then because of the political ideology being what it, what it is, if you're not a solid red or a solid blue in America, you're probably like, where, where are my people? Where are they? Like, they don't have a TV channel. I can't, go, I, can't go, I can't go be flipping through and find middle of the road, you know, dot com dot TV like it doesn't exist, okay? So there's a lot of people who are orphaned out there. And they are looking for a family that loves each other well. And what Jesus came to do is to make a way for us to be adopted into God's family and to live out the kingdom that he's taught and that he himself lived, okay? American society produces way too many orphans. And I think that's one of the things that we face as we move forward as a church. So I'm gonna invite our musicians to come up and we've got a song that we're gonna sing. I know I've thrown a lot at you today, but the biggest truth again is that you have been adopted. And now because you're Americans and you live in America and America runs the way it runs, you have this embodied thing in you that thinks that somehow you need to pay God back or that you're not quite good enough or man, those missionaries that you knew back in the day and they just love God and you just don't love God as much or, and you do this comparison thing that we all tend to do. And I wanna remind you that God's love for you is not based on what you bring to the table. It's based on what Jesus Christ did on our behalf. And he made the way open. He opened the door for us to become part of God's family, to be beloved.